Hello, you're listening to 97.3 KEPW LPFN Eugene. Uh, my name is Catherine, and this is Friendly Anarchism. Today, I have Candace King with me. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll just say what I just told you, which is that I'm Candace King, and I'm an open <laughs> communist. Uh, so if you... Uh, want to find out more you can find me on facebook under the name candace king you can look me up you can google me you can even stalk me if you wish <laughs> if i tell the whole world that you can steal my identity good luck <laughs> no don't stalk me but yeah you can steal my identity yeah if they if somebody wants to steal my identity and like take all my debt that's absolutely go, go, go for it yeah um so why are you a communist uh, wow, that's a really broad question. That's a big question. Uh, I know. So I guess it's because I realize that the conditions of the society under which we live, uh, especially the organization of capitalism, is inherently oppressive and um, that the extraction of capitalism goes beyond just resources of, of nature. It goes... I mean, it extracts the resources of human labor, it extracts the resources of our blood, sweat, and tears, and um, and it's also inherently imbalanced and bound to fail. So why not be part of the inevitably winning team? Yeah, inevitably winning, <laughs> I like that. Um, how long have you been a communist? And you said you're just like openly communist. Is that with people in your life outside of friends and family and leftists and yeah um so basically i just introduce myself as a communist generally when people ask me like who i am and what i'm about you know i say well i'm an i'm a leftist or i say i'm an anarcho-communist or i say i'm a revolutionary communist or just you know depending on the crowd i sort of temper my response usually more radical for the more conservative the crowd is mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i like that approach that's great um, you brought up a really interesting thing. You said um, communism, and then right after said anarcho-communism, and a lot of people feel like there's a whole lot of difference there, including me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how did so you know what I mean? So like, how do you see those things connecting, and why do you call yourself a communist versus sort of an anarchist? Which like for me, um, anarcho-communism, I started just sort of calling it commun. No, I started just calling it anarchism without any sort of hyphens. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Because when you talk about anarchism, generally, like, the the bulk of anarchism is an anarcho-communist model. Right. Right? So, um, for me, when I hear communism, mm-hmm. I think of something that still wants to take power from the state, like, go through the state power first, and then redistribute the power to the people. Yeah, so, see, like, I don't see it that way. Like, I, I sort of see both the... The, um, hello, I see both the spark of, or, or the revolutionary scenario under anarchism and the revolutionary scenario under communism being pretty similar, um, you know, the sort of spontaneous revolution that people are, you know, reticent to think will actually work. Um, so, like, from that perspective, from the revolutionary scenario, like, I don't really see that there's that much of a difference. The reason that I distinctly say anarcho-communism, and I guess I could go into a story of, like, sort of how I came to this realization, because it wasn't that long ago that I associated my sort of idea of, you know, an idealistic communist society as one that's, uh, more anarchist than, you know traditional communist (laughs) um is uh that i started as a socialist i would say about oh i don't know maybe a decade ago i think a decade ago i uh, was a socialist and i came to that realization actually after being a libertarian because that was the only model that i was taught in high school so like i was taught that i could be a libertarian within the confines of the system if i believed in like that everybody should have freedom and that people should be able to do what they want essentially as long as they don't hurt each other you know and that was the like depth of my uh you know political sort of identity um and then I, as I read more about socialism, and I realized that, well, if I'm a socialist, then I guess I'm a communist because, you know, socialism leads to communism. (laughs) So, like, that's the ultimate goal of it, right? So, like, 
why be an incrementalist or why be like half in right um so i guess like i'm a communist and i did have like because i i have a background in economics like got my degree in political economy and i had professors all along the way say don't say you're a communist say you're a socialist it's more palatable for people but i don't like palatable (laughs) um so like i like you know just sort of pushing the the envelope a little bit for especially for people who are easily offended um so from that sort of communist realization i realized that there was a lot about communism that i didn't like i don't like the whole um, i mean like communists also don't want the state as it exists to be in power but um a lot of the communists i know would be fine with authoritarianism and um you know like sort of a central state control and so I actually come from a fairly uh, agrarian state. I'm from Kansas and I know like I've spent enough time in nature and I've spent enough time doing agriculture and um, studying agriculture and natural systems to realize that like, and then I've also like looked at what happened with Stalin's five-year plan yeah, and those sort of things <laughs> and realized that like on the ground in reality, like you can't have a central state power that takes control of the decision-making, especially the major decision-making processes um, for, you know, the globe. I mean, I'm an internationalist because Mm -hmm. I think that it's better for everybody to have this sort of egalitarian system. But (laughs) I also know that, like, God, if we, like, just replaced Washington as it is with a bunch of other bureaucrats, you know, like... How quickly would that devolve into patriarchy again? How, you know, like, I mean, how quickly would that devolve into, like, people who have maybe good, I like, a good mindset or a, um, something good in their hearts for what happens, but no information? Like, so, and, and that's why I, I um, started to sort of explore the idea of maybe, well, I'm an anarchist in, like, the practical, fundamental aspects of day-to-day life for you know, human beings on this planet, like, I think that mutual and, you know, uh, cooperation um, is a better way for us to organize ourselves. Yeah, it's so funny because you say that socialism is only halfway, so, like, go all the way to communism, and I feel like communism's only halfway. Like, instead of, you know, you're talking about, like, taking power, and so, like, well, why don't just abolish it entirely? Yeah, right? well, I guess so, I'm willing to accept your sort of thirds. Third, the third way. <laughs> your, thir- your sort kind of, of third. Oh, wait, that has meanings. The third way. What is, I forgot. I don't know. Yeah. I'm I just, terrible I feel, with sometimes, quotes and sometimes, Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I was like, I think I need to be more specific about, um semantics are important so yeah um, before i before i say third way i'm gonna need to rem- like do some more research on exactly what the <laughs> what the connotations of that yeah are. because somebody yeah. might pick that apart and just assume that you're trying to mm-hmm. in- insinuate something that you're not which is like one of the major issues that i have with the left actually yeah well and it's with communism specifically yeah like you know you say communist and it does i mean legitimately bring up mao and lenin and stalin and a lot of these people who are in fact murderous dictators yeah who are abusive to their own people and like yeah. if i had i mean i always think about what if i had been in those scenarios and like been a peasant or been yeah. um you know a worker in those situations would i have gone with the party apparatus yeah. you know and it's like i don't know at that point can you change the party from within or does the party just change you? And it's yeah. the same with the system now. So it's like, yeah, I guess I would probably be stand apart from that situation yes. and, and be more, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of, I feel like one of the great tragedies of the last um, century was the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, because if you read, like, Alexander Berkman's take on what happened is people in Russia were, in fact organizing themselves within these like worker cooperative mutual aid systems just by themselves you know um and then the bolsheviks came in sort of as a vanguardist and took over and then it became it devolved into an authoritarian situation where a small handful of people ended up with all the power and sort of like what would have happened if the, the bolsheviks hadn't taken over right then you know what I mean? So yeah, it's a, I mean, it's sort of an interesting... Yeah, there's like there's not really a way of knowing, but I think that they would have had the best opportunity, um, most likely, 
uh, to continue on with these sort of co- organization of collectives and cooperatives yeah. and, you know, on different layers. So I'm really a fan of participatory democracy. And, like, I didn't see that happening in the history of the Soviet Union. You know, the Bolshevikism, the vanguardism, then there's just a sort of, like, authoritarianism. And I didn't see that happen in the Chinese Revolution yeah. or in the Cultural Revolution within China. Like, I just keep seeing these patterns of this top-down um, you know, also pretty patriarchal organization mm-hmm. yeah. happening, um, or, or organization. I don't know if it's organization or if it's, uh, something else. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's about power in those situations. And I think that if we can find a system or an absence of a system that delegates power equally, um, to all individuals, mm-hmm. then I'm for that system. Um, so yeah, that's why I call myself an anarcho-communist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. I mean, the problem, I mean, the, it's it's the same thing where it's like I said, you know, anarcho-communism is called that because it has the same basis and idea of sharing the commons. Mm-hmm. You know, so like that's that's the connection there. But then there's so many communists who are sort of like apologists. You know, are are, are tanky, <laughs> not friends. Um, you know, I'm on I'm online and you know I should not be arguing with <laughs> tankies on the internet. But there's somebody. You know, somebody who's making excuses for the Cultural Revolution, it's like, you know, you, like, I don't, that's not cool. Hashtag not all leftists. Yeah, right. You know? I mean, I, I also have a tendency to be critical of tankies, but then I also have people who are very close to me, oh, yeah. um, who are like family almost, you know, who tend to toe that sort of mm. tanky line of, mm-hmm. you know, communist history or, I, and I, and so that's another reason that I like lean more towards anarchism is because I'm not really interested in upholding the like legacy or, you know, theories of any dude that's dead, you know, (laughs) first of all, he's a dude, so he doesn't have any clue what's going on with me. And like, second of all, he's dead. So and and everything he did is also dead. (laughs) And like, I mean, I don't think that like the ideas of Marx are dead necessarily, but I wouldn't call myself a Marxist. Graber, uh, David Graeber. I like makes, him. Oh, I like him a lot. He makes a really, really interesting point that um, Marxists are still authoritarian. I mean, uh, communists are still authoritarian just by, you can tell just by the way that they define themselves through uh, the names of like big authorities of communism. They're called Marxists and Leninists and Stalinists and Maoists, as opposed to anarchists who. Um, define themselves by their praxis. Right. You know, like, you know, they call themselves <laughs> anarcho-syndicalists or anarcho-communists, and, you know what I mean, anarcho-primitivists. Like, those right. are instead, so it's not about a person, it's about a way of being. So it's an interesting thing where you can tell just within the language sort of the different approaches to um, how, what this, what this sort of thing means for you, you know? Yeah. I also think that sort of this uh, strict adherence to communism and, like, our dead masters or whatever, um limits our ability to um, adapt to like the conditions the material conditions under which we're currently living yeah you know um, being total adherence to these old dead theorists like they didn't have a way to conceptualize the sort of technological revolution that we would be undergoing and I'm sure there's plenty of good like Marxist Leninist well-studied communists out there, dudes most likely, who will tell me, like, who will have lots of stuff to say in the comments or whatever of SoundCloud in this interview about how they did um, anticipate that there would be a technological revolution and how we can um, use what they taught us to adjust our, uh, you know, to to uh, adapt with with our current material conditions. But, I mean... I don't need to do that. I don't need to like be an adherent to, or even that well studied. And I certainly, I have a hard time memorizing shit. So like, that's one <laughs> of the things. And I know a lot of people on the left or a lot of people who might want to be leftists who do have a hard time understanding Marx, who have a hard time understanding Lenin, who have a hard time remembering all of the details. And like, so, you know, and so for them, like, they're still working class people, they're still the proletariat, they're still 
you know, fundamentally supposed to be egalitarian or equal members of this revolution, right? And we'll have people, like, telling us, like, you need to figure out where you align. Are you a Trotskyist, then, if you're an internationalist? Are you, <laughs> you know? And it's like, fuck that. Excuse me. We're going to need to edit this. It's okay. Thankfully, let's, like, you know, bam all that history. Like, let's talk about, like, what's what's going on right now. Like, people who are living the situation know the struggle that they're in. Yeah. And, I mean, (laughs) Marx had no way of knowing. I mean, he said, well, we just need to let capitalism burn itself out and then we can take over. It's like, I don't think he... There's no way that he could have foreseen capitalism destroying literally everything. (laughs) You know what I mean? Before taking it over. Like, he just couldn't have known that. Well, I mean, under the constructs and organization of capitalism as it was supposed to be, actually, like, profit margins, for instance, were supposed to eventually go to zero in the long run. Like, that is built into all of the short and long run models of capitalist economics. Um, But... Uh, we have a system that, like, the prevailing system does not want that to occur because the people who are in charge of that then would lose their foothold uh, and and their long-term, I don't know, like, I guess beyond their own existence, um, ability to garner profits from exploitation, right? So they've developed or devised these mechanisms to continue profiting yeah. when they where they shouldn't be. Yeah. And um, so they're actually refuting <laughs> and like uh, you know not living within the constructs of of their own system that they're supposed to be you know hailing. <laughs> so, I, yeah. And that was the whole point of that economic education (laughs) was for me to learn that (laughs) well economics is really interesting because sort of the economic field has been really uh, like dominated by sort of the right wing like by capitalists generally and you know what i mean so like you go into economic theory and it's it's based on sort of these weird ideas of equilibrium these capitalist ideas like well everything will naturally equilibrize which is totally not true which is completely false and like you if I I was reading you know I would go and read Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and Mm -hmm. whatever just to sort of know what people are talking about and in their own little like right elitist worlds they're totally open about the fact that they will recreate economic models in order to get the answer that they want from them yeah and then use those economic models as like a lobbying tool to further their capitalist means and like you know agenda so well yeah i mean so in the like there's i have a lot to say about that but i'll just say it like this in the same breath that you know the the fathers the stalwarts of capitalist economics will say this is the way it is these are the models as they exist this is the way the universe works and this is equilibrium like you're talking about and um, will also, out of this other side of their mouths, say, but we can create new equilibriums and we can identify new equilibriums and we can create, like you said, models that will support our goals. And unfortunately, with every, just like with everything else in society um, that we live in, um, the models that they create benefit the people who have power now yeah and they're not really interested in optimizing best practices or you know creating a less violent system or you know doing it they're not interested in any like other goals i mean so like okay if in economic nerd speak you have these linear equations right which is basically the models for how we figure out you know this is and this goes into this to create this outcome right Mm -hmm. and so the dependent variable of like everything um (laughs) everything done under capitalism Uh is always like about growth yeah profit which makes zero sense (laughs) you can't grow in a finite sphere You just have to continually exploit more and more and more until everybody is a slave and there are no resources left. That's the natural outcome. Yeah. 
You know? I mean, we're squeezing more. I mean, and I see it happening, and I've gotten into these arguments with people who are, like, much more credentialed than I. But as somebody who's, like, been on the ground and working class and done, like, fast food jobs and done, like, yeah. and worked my way up through the restaurant industry and also, like, been shot back down to the bottom, you know? Like, as somebody who's been there, I see the employers, whatever, job creators, whatever you want to call them, squeezing more and more labor out of people for less and less, like benefit to those people and so like that is like if you're a marxist that is you know theory fulfilled right so it's happening that's my baby (laughs) um and then um you know i've seen other things too yeah you've seen it too been around for five months but i guess you would know daddy's really frustrated he likes his job and he wants to be loyal worker but you know um he also understands that like he's benefiting capitalism (laughs) no i mean there's there's it sucks because there's i mean there's no ethical consumption under capitalism it also feels like there's no ethical way to work either if you're if you unless you have sort of real privilege you know a lot of people one of the things about you know anarchism and sort of the tolstoy model of anarchism is to just withdraw from the society entirely (laughs) You know, but that is that, and like people do, they have like their little communes and they have little things. It's like that really does come from a certain privileged position, though. Like, you know what I mean? Like, most people don't have the luxury of just withdrawing from the system. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, that would be all fine and great if like all of these anarcho communist or like anarcho communal situations were actually like welcoming to people but they're not they're exclusive Mm -hmm. they realize the limits of the resources that they have and they understand that like even though you know their heads and hearts are probably in the right place in terms of like wanting a better society for people to live in that they really aren't inviting the people who are really marginalized or really oppressed or really struggling yeah and they have all of these reasons why they don't want to and they're perfectly logical reasons under like this sort of hierarchy like like like, oh like people have drug problems and i can't deal with that people have um you know, like, uh, we have a lot of homeless people. Well, they have all of these other issues that we can't deal with. We are not willing to accept them, you know. Or, like, people have families. That's just too much for us to take on. And mm-hmm. what do they know? And then, like, there's this... And I think that there's a whole racist element to it. You know, as a black woman, I've always... It's always assumed that I don't have any desire to, like, be part of, you know... Um, agrarianism or something like that like i mean i don't know like that's just the that's just the feeling that i get when i go into situations where i'm talking with people about um you know like their communes or whatever you know their Mm -hmm. commune situations it's never like oh you know maybe you have something to offer it's like actually i'm a pretty studied like ecological um design really you've done that yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i've raised fish and i've gardened and cool and i know forestry and i know all kinds of stuff but you don't see that many black folks out in the woods and stuff because it's like first of all it's dangerous you know also like i mean there's a whole history behind it we you know went to the cities to do work and stuff after slavery because you know that was where we were safer Mm. um and so because of that like maybe there's a big part of us who have lost that identity but then there's also like this disassociation of people of color with um you know communal living situations and like their ability to thrive in those environments so like when i go to communes like generally ubiquitously like or have been to a few communes you know it's like always like these like white people (laughs) you know which makes black people feel uncomfortable like let's like let's realize like let's be honest like if you're the only person um who looks like you walking into a situation like that can be pretty uncomfortable like you don't want to be surrounded by your oppressors all the time i mean i don't even like look at like middle class like or anarchist or communal or anybody like white people as my oppressors i mean i definitely see a difference but like i don't want to be surrounded by people who like have no concept really probably i mean of what it's like day to day for me yeah you know so that's why (laughs) i remember when formation came out 
uh, you know, Beyonce formation. Oh, yeah, I don't really know much about that, but we can... <laughs> the, well, it's just the one thing I wanted to bring up is I remember within sort of the black community, the blogs that I follow and stuff, it was a big deal that there was a black cowboy. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like that she had in, included a black cowboy, and it, it touched... I just read it touched a lot of people in a special, special place, and I had... Oh, it, yeah, because there are black cowboys. Yeah, and it's sort of like breaking <laughs> stereotypes and stuff, and you're bringing up the idea that, you know, you've got agrarian like there are this whole like that white people have dominated this sort of like rural space Mm -hmm. you know what i mean well it's like if you think about like the last election in 2016 or whatever right i mean people said white rural people like that was the sort of media trope this is who voted for trump right but they didn't even consider the fact that there is a crap ton of people of color who are farming and i mean people of color like Black and Latinx people who are farming, who own land, um, who are cowboys, you know, whatever, who are doing the damn thing (laughs) on the ground, (laughs) working hard every day. um, And they're not even considered like part of that identity, like the rural identity. Yeah. And they are really there. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you never, never see you never see that. Never being, see that. Like, yeah. you know, portrayed. But I lived in Kentucky for four years. I will tell you what. There are black farmers, okay? <laughs> I've lived in Kansas most of my life. There are black farmers. Yeah. There are black cowboys. There are black cowboys in the city, in fact. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Black Cowboy at 17th and Hillside in Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> for real, <laughs> legit. There was a black cowboy who lived behind my elementary school. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's interesting. You know, as a white person, it's not a part of our American culture that I get exposed to at all, especially as no. somebody on the West Coast or, you know, like every, pretty much there's not really black farmers in Oregon. No. You know what I mean? Well, there's not so, really a lot of black people in Oregon in general. Yeah. What's it I mean, why did you move out here? What's it what's it like being black in Oregon specifically? I mean, right now we're having some pretty serious we like the, yeah. the history of Oregon is super white supremacist. It's really really based in I mean, we had sundown laws, and they had all of, you know, and the history, the history is bad. And, like, right now, a lot of that stuff's coming to the top, so, like, I mean, how are you doing? Well, here's the deal. I came here because uh, the University of Oregon offered me a sweet-ass deal for my graduate program. And I have a great advisor and a really awesome department, and for that reason alone, it was worth it. But when I looked at the demographics of the area before I came here, I was really shook. Like, I lived in Kentucky for the last four years and like I didn't like the fact that it where the places where I was living was predominantly were predominantly white except for oh I went to school in Berea and there's this whole history and it's there's a lot of young black people in Berea because the school is decidedly and pronouncedly like uh anti-racist it was founded by an abolitionist so um but moving here I was like really already feeling kind of fatigued uh, with the whole being surrounded by white people all the time thing. And then like knew I was coming here and the demographics were like one to 2%, um, African Americans. And like, I also looked up the amount of the Latino population or the Latinx population and realized that they were also like pretty small compared to what I'm used to growing up in Kansas in the middle of the country, which is like, you know, really surprisingly integrated. So, um, I was like fatigued before I got here, mm. you know, uh, but there's a couple of things. So people in Oregon are really nice. Um, and I think that that's a, a, not just a function of like liberalism, you know, um, although that's part of it. I think it's a function of the fact that it's such a beautiful place. Yeah. Oregon is an awesome, gorgeous, beautiful place with pretty decent weather, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and um, I, I like the infrastructure. I love the trees. You know, I, I'm really into nature, even though I'm terribly allergic to it. <laughs> um, and so I wasn't, I, I was pretty adamant that I wasn't going to leave this place. Yeah. Like to everybody else and not get to be part of it because I was scared of the demographics. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things about anarchism. It's about like taking space. Yeah. You know, it's like the space-based idea of that, like, it's really important for us to control and take and be present in physical space and not not give that up right. to people. Right. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm still happy learning. to have you here. <laughs> I'm still learning how to take space. Um, That's hard. You know, 
Because, like, I didn't grow up in a situation where I had to do that, really. Like, mm. I grew up in a place where I thought it was post-racial America. Because mm-hmm. it was so... <laughs> like, I grew up in an Air Force town, so it's so integrated. It's so diverse. And, like, people just sort of deal with each other as people. Mm. I mean, there's definitely still racism and there's still, like, segregation. I don't know how much of that is deliberate. Like... I mean, on behalf of the marginalized people, like people of color seem to want to segregate ourselves uh, in my hometown, you know, and the cultures are really rich as a result of that. Yeah. Um, so like there's, you know, I mean, I'm always looking at things from two sides of the coin, trying to be dialectical, I guess we would say. <laughs> One of those lovely commie buzzwords that nobody knows what the- <laughs> I mean, at this point, we're gonna have to edit this anyway. You can yeah. Start. <laughs> okay. Well, I was trying to trying to say it in such a way that it wouldn't get edited. Uh, <laughs> what the f it means? Yeah. It's one of those buzzwords, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't honestly. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> I, mean, so, I shouldn't. I mean, like, I've had a, like a few comrades explain it to me, and like I've looked it up a bunch of times, and I'm still just like, so basically, the idea of dialectical. Um, analysis is that you know that there are two sides you know mm-hmm. and two different perspectives that people could be coming from in a scenario that's all but I, yeah exactly like, that's it, i'm two. like that's it just two sides just oh but but for communism for leftists for marxism the idea is that the two sides are the ruling class versus oh, the working class so you know like those are the two perspectives that we should be like trying to like identify and we should be trying to promote the perspective uh, and the mission of the working class. So for that, I get it. But I'm also like, well, within the working class, you know. There's differences. I mean, yeah. I'm not really that interested in learning what the ruling class different perspectives are. <laughs> them, but like, and within the working class, we're talking like infinite, right? So, And then, you know, it's interesting because we sort of, I, I, figure, I see anarchism as uh, post-Marxist. Yeah. And in general, I mean, even back from the 60s, and Murray Bookchin wrote a really awesome essay mm-hmm. that is super fun. <laughs> a little little digs into, well, not even a little, it's called Listen, Marxist! Exclamation Oh, point. I haven't heard of this one. I'll have to oh, check you it have out. To read it. Yeah, it's great. Well, he basically rips apart, Mar- he kind of rips apart Marxism and says, like, at the part of where our society is right now, and this is in the 60s, and I think this is still true, is that people do not separate themselves by class. And so, no. like, you can't, you're not going to ever be able to organize the working class because we don't, nobody identifies themselves in those terms at this point. Like, we identify ourselves by, like, other kinds of de- demographics and, like, kind of what we do and then by our space. And so, like, anarchist organizing at this point is really focused in on space based Mm -hmm. so it's like neighborhood organizing it's like local organizing it's like creating sustainable local systems and like it's not really part of the class and it's like i mean it is obviously related to class but it's also kind of you don't have to actually worry about that much because if you're doing low if you're doing at the point where our society is yeah if you're doing um neighborhood organizing and space-based organizing and working with the oppressed, like, we're already really segregated. Like, you're not going to have to deal with millionaires in your space. Like, right. they're somewhere else already. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, they have so other like, things to they do. They have other, yeah, so, like, if you're in, if you're in oppressed <laughs> yeah. spaces, you know, it's sort of already assumed, and then people have a, um, a shared experience for being in that space together, whether or not they're, you know, wherever yeah. they are on the, on the, on the um, class lines. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people are conscious of their class because it's not something that we're taught, like, we're taught, you know. Mm-hmm. Most people have this sort of basic elementary education, you know, uh, to get them through childhood enough to be good workers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and for, and not to slight anybody for that, because I think that, you know, like, I've definitely been there. Um, but, like, ultimately, like, you can't build class consciousness, you know, unless you've, identified that there are all of these other things happening within class. Like, we're not going to be able to break down um, the barriers between the working class and the ruling class until we break down the barriers within the working class. Yeah. And you can. I mean, neighborhood organizing, that's, like, one of the things I like about um, uh, anarchism is the sort of, like, street-level, you know, small-scale organizing that idea of that taking place you know one of my visions i guess i would say i've had for like an i you know for like a revolutionary potential in society is that we actually just organize where we are Mm -hmm. we organize our neighborhoods we organize 
our workplaces. We organize our Lions Club or whatever, yeah. you know, we're involved in like other interest organizations, you know, moms organize people of, you know, um, with just whatever status you got, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. and that it's okay to be part of more than one organization. Yeah. Intersectionality is good. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> so like, um, and then we can start building this sort of class identity, like understanding that we're all in the same, on the same level mm -hmm. of society and that, you know, and that basically all we're allotted the right to is form these civil society organizations, but we can do that. And that's not working within the system because you can form those civil society organizations with the expressed and direct goal of undoing the system. And then since the system is more and more obviously oppressing more and more people, I think class consciousness is sort of arising just on its own right. without sort of the dialectical <laughs> analysis, yeah. right? Yeah. Because everyone's looking around and being like, we are all getting screwed like, on the left and the right, it's harder on the right because a lot of people just see themselves as embarrassed millionaires. You know what I mean? It's like, they'll be the ruling class. It's like, I really doubt that. Like, we do not, we don't actually have, um, yeah. like, economic mobility in this country. Right. Well, like, the whole, the whole idea of being an embarrassed millionaire, I love that. Because, like, I mean, I'm just struggling with the idea that people who are poor, who are really destitute, who, you know, lump in proletariat or whatever you classify them as that they wouldn't understand, believe that they're just embarrassed people from the middle class. That no matter what, someday they're going to be middle class or, you know, every tax season they are middle class, you know, and then, and then the, on the other side of the coin, you have people who are really millionaires who are really like, uh, um, either exploiting or they've really figured out, you know, a position in the hierarchy to get enough to, in excess of what they need. They're saying, oh, I'm middle class. So everybody right. in America is middle class, yet I don't... <laughs> exactly. And then nobody is middle class. And then nobody is middle class. Right. <laughs> because what is this middle class thing that we're... That I, we're I mean, it's a precarious position to be in. Well, you know, and you see people saying, like, how people... I, I saw a really interesting thread where people were basically bragging about how good they were at being um, poor... You know, and just sort of like, I do, you know, it's just sort of this become this thing where it's like, I make, and it's a, it makes sense, it makes sense to just be mm -hmm. like, I do so well with the little I have, and we should all be able to be thankful for, like, the little tiny bit that we are given, and it's sort of like, but no, like, we shouldn't, like, be okay with that well, who's dynamic. giving it to us? I know, exactly. And then why are you accepting a gift? Because with, with within the acceptance of a gift comes, you know, there are strings attached. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, so, and what are the strings, strings attached to the gift that you're being given of being poor? <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, and, I mean yeah. yeah. And, like, within, like, especially, like, within this sort of, like, poor white Christian community, there's this whole thing. It's, like, being really proud of having nothing and, like... Which is like that's a survival technique. Mm -hmm. Like I totally get that. Like it's totally a survival to be proud of like the fact that you can make it and you're making it on very little, and that's yeah. that, that makes sense. But on the other hand, having that translate into not wanting more or shaming people who want more than that, like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, like I've definitely never been a proponent of consumer capitalism. You know, like I can remember from being a very young age, being a child, and saying like this is garbage. Like yeah. why? And I can really remember like saying probably at the age of four that like can't everything just be free for everybody like why do people have to starve why yeah. do people have to like go without these basic things that they need um to survive and so about these like you know christians or and not even just christians but people who are like uh really proud of having very little and you know i mean you know to each their own or whatever but don't project that ideal on other people because like maybe you solitary you or whatever is capable of surviving off very little um you know and but you still have the base your basic needs met mm -hmm. so you still have food maybe some form of shelter probably clothing you know unless you're like really legitimately a primitivist you're going back to like being naked in the woods right like so you have these basic things but understand that you then are still in a privileged position in the whole grand scheme of society of the world 
Yeah, I guess my the caveat should should be the fact that shaming people for wanting to have basic needs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because I do, I mean, like, as a Quaker, one of the things is simplicity and sort of the anti-capitalist thing, too, is, like, you really don't need more and more stuff. Yeah. And that's part of, like, the prefigurative working also as an anarchist is is not having and not needing a lot of stuff. But then it does come down to this poison. It's like, yeah, but people do need basic needs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, need basic needs and a little more than that. You yeah. Know, we it's, our... You know, you need, you need to be able to buy your coffee or whatever. You we know? need our like, basic needs met and we need enjoyment you need dignified fulfillment of our existence because god you know i mean we're born into this world not asking to be placed in the system that we're in Mm -hmm. and no matter who you are you're still born with the same basic needs and then as a person you're born with the ability to question and the ability to desire and the ability to do all these things and like to, to push that down like to to push that out just in order to like fit into you know, the whole scheme of this capitalist society. Because, yeah. I mean, essentially that's what you're doing, right? If you're saying, like, well, I don't need anything. I can just live and be apart from this system. Well, you're doing that to satisfy, you know, the concerns of the ruling classes or the capitalists or whatever who would be fearful of somebody with that much revolutionary fervor, you Uh know, because if you're willing to sacrifice everything, then maybe you should be fighting the revolution and not like excluding yourself from society. Yeah, that's true. You know, like if you have that much within you, you know, (laughs) to just give it up, I mean, then what do you have to lose? Right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot to lose. So thanks for fighting on my behalf. Yeah, so, like, that's sort of the, I mean, going back, you know, I consider myself um, small C Christian, Yeah, I just think Christ was rad, and sort of what yeah, he says cool. is, like, I expect everything. Like, you, you're supposed to give up everything to fight oppression, and yeah. you know what I mean? And it's like, he, he asked for disciples, he never, like... It's just like an interesting situation where it's like, yeah, you 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 know, if you if you can, if you mm-hmm. have that privilege to be able to give up, like I personally have much more privilege to give up more of my life because I don't have a family, right? You know what I mean? So it's like you, but so that how does that? I mean, that ties into the sort of difficulty of being a family person within revolution, and also the way of like running a revolution at sort of different scales where everybody can be involved as according to their ability. You know, yeah. without being without being excluded and having revolution run only by people who have that privilege to give up more. Right. Right. Well, okay, so like I think that there's this whole stigma on the left of, of having a family. Like most of my comrades don't have any kids or anything. And I understand like why. Because a lot of times I feel sort of a little sad that I can't get involved like um physically all the time when I want to I can't physically be there to like fight fascists in the streets and stuff like that because I have people who rely on me to you know survive and who I love and who love me you know they don't want to see anything bad happen to me but I think that like we shouldn't discount families as part of the revolution first of all families are who politicians pander to Mm. in the society at large so uh and and rank and file people workers you know we are the workers i mean we are the reason that capitalism exists because we have these seeds that we've you know sown that like we want to protect and as a result we really do adhere to you know in a lot of ways the capitalist construct and model um and because we don't see a feasible alternative at the moment Mm-hmm. Um, or a lot of families. I mean, I see feasible alternatives all the time, but I need more people to cooperate with me, yeah. right? And um, that we can't really relinquish our position within, you know, the sort of capitalist model because we have everything to lose, you yeah. know? I mean, I don't care about my stuff. Like, I've proven that time and time again. I've just up and left, you know, <laughs> <laughs> many times to start over. But... Um, with my kids, you know, and, um, but we do care about the people who rely on us. And I think that there's a lot to be learned from families. I mean, when you think about that, when you think about the fact that parents are generally willing to sacrifice all of their autonomy and their ability to, you know, um, be free and do whatever, fight the revolution or, you know, be crackheads, you know, whatever. (laughs) Um, good parents, 
Because <laughs> 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 well, um, are are generally willing to relinquish all of that autonomy to protect you know, somebody who they don't necessarily know the outcome of <laughs> what yeah. that's going to be. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to learn from that in, in terms of a revolutionary perspective. I think that um, that fierce, protective nature is mm-hmm. exploited by the right. Absolutely. You know, for sure, to, like, keep people within the system, because it's like, if you're threatening the system, you're threatening my family, you know, specifically. But and on the other hand, that same, like, sort of, like, protective intense fervor for um, for their families can also I've seen be a real driver of power on the left because it's the same thing it's like well I'm going to protect my family I'm going to protect their future mm-hmm. like this is for my kids like other than like, like the most intense fighters I've seen recently yeah and in general in my work especially in the last year has mm-hmm. been grandmas because grandmas have like are like real intense about saving yeah. and protecting their I grandkids, <laughs> but they're also retired. Yeah, you know, they also are like they don't. They're kind of like on doing their own thing, and some of them have more means. So like grandmas have been real, real awesome as far as revolutionaries go because they've got. But because part of that is that sort of like family protective instinct. You well, know? yeah, and then also by the time you're a grandma, you've done hella work. <laughs> like you, and you've not probably seen the gains that you anticipated, and you've seen the whole course of history of your life and the way it played out and probably didn't play out the way you expected it would. And it probably didn't, you know, you probably didn't end up where you thought you might. And you can definitely reflect on the ways in which you interacted with the system at large and it screwed you over. And so you have a historical perspective and you also have something to fight for, you know? And I think that families have that. I think that families have something to fight for. I think that, I mean, maybe without sounding like too simplistic the left is a very small space and there isn't really doesn't really seem like there is a lot of space for families in the left like but it doesn't have to be that way how do we fix that i mean especially you know for me and doing like anti-fascist organizing is dangerous and so that is sort of like left Mm -hmm. to but but i think families can provide material support because we have stability Mm -hmm. so that's one thing that i think that families have to offer you know and i it would take a lot for many people who have families to step outside of their comfort zone and be willing to offer material, physical, or, you know, whatever support for people who are fighting what I consider to be a real war on the streets, which is this anti-fascist thing. But, like, I know that I have my home and that if people are in trouble, they can always come to me. And there's also always, always, like, people see the fighting in the streets and everything. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge amounts of organizing work that's basically just sort of administrative. Yeah. You know, like meetings and, you know, emails and, like, organizing things and Excel sheets and all of this stuff. It's Keeping all it completely, completely hugely necessary and, like, a really, really big part of being an organizer. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's all stuff that could be done by people that is not as... Dangerous. It's not dangerous, you know? It's not, like, mm-hmm. putting your physical body in the line... So it's like, how do we sort of get some of that work off of the, like, if it would be really, really helpful for people doing more on the ground stuff to not have to also be worrying about data entry. <laughs> you know, like, like that well, would... I mean, that, that is, that is a really good point. Um, I would say that like a lot of times families don't even have time for that. And that's yeah, part that's of true. like, that's part of the whole like scheme of capitalism, right? is to keep us so devolved or, and separated from who we actually are as, as people in the world mm-hmm. um, and making us better and better pieces or players for the system to continue to be perpetuated. Yeah. That part of that is just taking our time from us, is stealing our time. Actually, yeah. a lot of my resor- research is about um, just the sort of politics of time. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and how they're imposed on the individual, um, and how, like, you know, I mean, I speak from experience on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> My partner and I are drinking a cup of coffee so that we can stay up for another hour until the kids go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not saying, like, we shouldn't be there to, you know, fight the war against fascism. I'm just saying, like, if we had better ways of involving families, um, or thinking from the perspective of like how can we free families from 
the confines of the system and not leave it up to them because families need help. Families need support yeah. to do it because we have so much working against us and we are a risk. Like we're, for instance, in my house, I'm lucky to have two adults right now. You know what I mean? I haven't always had that, but we're two adults working to support, you know, ourselves and uh, for other people, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So like our resources are constrained, but if we can help to free families from the confines of capitalism, then there's a lot of energy. That's six people worth of energy. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> that could be there and employed to, you know, do the good things um, that are necessary for the revolution. And like, I always, I've always felt that kids have a right that to be involved, mm-hmm. obviously in safe ways. Yeah. But yeah, um, because this is their fight. Like we're really like our future, especially with climate change and all these things. It's like, you know, I think kids really have a right to be in this mm-hmm. fight. Um, but I've heard also the idea is like, but you don't want to be projecting your own values onto your children. No, but or that's like what you do. <laughs> but that's what parents do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what? We don't tell Christians not to project their own Christian values on their children. Yeah. Or like, yeah. It's tr- yeah. We don't tell um, rich people, hey, don't tell your kids how to be rich. Like, we don't tell, like, like, like just raise them as feral children and don't tell them anything about their position in society (laughs) or that they're going to inherit a crap ton of money or that all your connections are going to make them really wealthy someday. You know, I mean, so no, I think it's our job as leftists, as revolutionary leftists to raise these children with the right ideas. And I make my kids study (laughs) (laughs) communist ideas and I make them go out into the street with me since they were little Uh and protest and I Uh make them be involved and I and I let them understand like the reasons we're doing this like why you know back in oh god I don't know what year that was 2011 why are we you know my kids were like mom why are we in the streets every day and it's like well because this you know state of Georgia is gonna execute this man Troy Davis and he has maintained his innocence up until the day he died and there are is questionable whether or not he committed the crime that they're executing him for without even going into the details of the fact that co- the capital punishment is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is a man who there is a question as to whether or not like he did the thing that they're saying that he should die for and they're still going to execute him anyway. So this is why we're in the street every day to raise awareness about this issue. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> and yeah. they were like, Oh, I get it. And then yeah. they were like fighting, like they're in yeah. the street, like yelling with passion too. They're like, don't kill Troy Davis. It's wrong. And when he was killed, they were sad, you know, yeah. but those are the realities of the world. And I'm not going to insulate them from that because they need to know from a very young age that like, this is the magnitude of the system that we're fighting against. And this is why. Mm-hmm. And so like, if I'm not always physically available to them, because a lot of times I sacrifice time at home in order to go out and do the sort of administrative type of things that yeah. you're talking about right. and have meetings and like talk with people and you know, whatever, like so that they understand that the reason that I'm doing that is because of the unjustness, the, the level of injustice in the system. And then also like, because I care about the way the world is going to, unfold for them yeah so yeah (laughs) it's It's intense it's like it's an intense thing but that that intensity is part of the fire that drives um our acts of revolution you know revolutionary acts so um i agree how do you know we we need we need money (laughs) <laughs> we need money. We need money. No, we need I mean, time. We need time and we need money. Well, I think that money can buy us time. So, I mean, as much as, like, I don't want to buy into the whole idea of, like, buy in, ha, 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 um, <laughs> to the whole idea of, like, oh, you know, we should own property and stuff like that. And the reality is, in the system that we currently have, like, that is actually one way to liberate people. Because property owners actually have a level of freedom, you know, in this society. Yeah. Uh, they have rights. You know, and one of the things about owning property, um, that space, it's actual physical space for people to be in that isn't controlled, that doesn't require them to like go and toil every day. Well, I mean, like, you know, Sergei Popovic, um, talking about the Serbian revolution was saying that it was easier to find revolutionaries than to find space to organize. Like space is a huge asset to any sort of like revolutionary, um, works. I mean, if you, so if you look at, like, Chedon or the situations in in Mexico or in other places in um, South America, right? Um, 
which is still America, by the way, America, North America, South America, <laughs> and Mexico, that's still America, so get it through your head. Like, we're all Americans here. <laughs> get over your supremacy. Anyway, <laughs> I had to say that. Okay. Um, uh, but no, so if you look at, like, in um, Michoacan or in Oaxaca, um, you know, you have indigenous groups who are literally taking back the space that they have inhabited for thousands of years, you know, um, from the control of the state because the state has failed them and they have recognized that the state has not only failed them, but the state is exploiting them and using their resources and killing them. And those are how high the stakes are for them. And they realize that this is their space. And so they just take it back. And in within the process of taking back their state, they find that they are better able to organize themselves. They're able to delegate or operate their society on a much higher level, much better for everybody involved in their, in their scenarios, you know, in, in their, in their places, in their spaces in, within Mexico, but they're autonomous, you know, they're getting Mm -hmm. like the rights of autonomous states. And I'm not saying like, we should all be, what is the word? Secessionists. Yeah. You know, like, because I don't want, like, to be in Oregon and have the government of Oregon, like, saying, okay, we're se- we're seceding from the union, but now we're just the country of Oregon and we're going to follow all the well, rules I, of the that country. That actually, like, is a, a real, um, there's, like, a real strain of white supremacist secessionists, especially in Oregon. Right. Like, sort of the Cascadia rising. Yeah. Or, uh, which one? Cascadia... Anyway, there's one. There's, there's a couple like, Cascadias. One is really good yeah, because it's about really forestry. Good. And then there's another one that's, that's trying to co-op the energy of that movement that is a white supremacist movement yeah, yeah. for a true Cascadia. That's who they are. Oh, Fuck that? those. Um, screw those Nazis. <laughs> yeah. F those guys yeah. in true Cascadia. I'm coming for you. Okay. <laughs> you know what we need for us and we need people to care about for us in Oregon and for them to co-opt that long run hard fought organization that is working to protect our forests like for them to do that like that's not even that's just so insulting it's more insulting than them being Nazis in the first place is the fact that like probably white people organized the original Cascadia forestry movement and they're like screw all your work we're just gonna take and co-opt the energy from your movement and then well, I mean that's you know, what they do that's and then, what Nazis do is they yeah, co-opt it's, it's, leftists yeah it's, they like, co-opt everything yeah they're super offensive like well, you they know? Can't, they're not creative they can't think of anything for themselves so it's like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know? yeah that's a good point um you know, yeah, I mean, and, well, and cap, you know, and actually government and, um, you know, politicians under capitalism, they're not creative either. No. And they all co-op the ideas. Oh, of, yeah. And I then mean, water so, yeah. down and then pat, pat themselves on the back and give people a scrap so that they'll stop fighting. Right. Yeah. yeah we've got two more minutes. Cool. Anything, anything real burning that you want to talk about? to the world um, not really at this point i mean i think i kind of got something through oh yeah if people could stop mansplaining things to me that would be super great oh i'm into that let's have them not do that i heard i saw a really really funny <laughs> meme. i saw a really funny meme that um said instead of mansplaining can we call it um um correctile dysfunction <laughs> Oh, memes. (laughs) No, but for real, though, because, like, the women in the left, I'm sorry, but we're tired of it. Oh, yeah, we're super tired of it. We're doing a lot of the work. As usual. And, you know, we're not getting credit for being um, intellectually involved in doing the work. Yeah. And that's bull. Yeah. And we know the struggle. We're in it. Oh, yeah, we're super in it. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So please, stop trying to tell me what we have to do. Yeah. Or how to understand things. Yeah, and I feel like women are really running this revolution anyway. Look at like the who's the organ who are the top organizers in Black Lives Matter right. at Standing Rock. Standing Rock was totally organized and run by indigenous women. It couldn't be run by men. Yeah, a lot of stuff can't be run by men. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say I don't love men. I love men. I mean, you know, I just don't want you telling me what to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, I said this in the sort of the violent, nonviolent episode when I was trying to do research on violence and nonviolence that every single book was by like a cishat white man on this, ep- on the, and like I, I need, like, it's just, and it's like obnoxiously hard to find those voices 
Yeah. Uh, that are not them. Well, I think Audre Lorde, maybe. I don't yeah. know. I really want to, um, I want to write more, you know, but I'm really good at researching and I'm terrible at like finding the time to put all my ideas together and write. That's the thing is like women often <laughs> and like, it's, you know, anybody with any sort of like intersectional type of oppression we have that's what we were talking about earlier it's like we have less time to do yeah. that writing and to all of those things it's like <laughs> i have lots of ideas i have lots of writing i'd like to do and it's just like i just don't have the time so the important thing for us is yeah. space right yeah that's... the space will give us time oh yeah yeah so yeah so i'm an advocate for you know the left buying property and housing people and like I, I, let's actually do revolution well, I mean, let's we actually don't... cooperate let's it's not necessarily buying, though, also. I mean, the squatting movement is huge and, like, really important to, like, um, the anarchist scene. It is, scene. but it's not everywhere. No, it's not everywhere, but maybe it should be. Maybe it should be. Maybe I mean, yeah, be. so maybe not buying. But. All right, so thank you so much. We are at an hour, so I just wanted to say real quick that you have been listening to KEPW 97.3 Eugene Homegrown Radio, um, <laughs> LPFM. And this has been Friendly Anarchism with our special guest here, Candace King. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me.